Good morning. I don't know about you, but might be a good time, I, I think, to um, not fire up the computer or turn on the TV, <laughs> turn on the radio. You can't do any of the above without hearing about the sky falling these days. They're hurricanes. They kill people, including Christians. There's vicious flu bugs out there. I sometimes think the panic is worse than the news item. But be that as it may, people are stressed out to the max right now. On high alert, good reason or bad, there are caution signs everywhere, warning signals. There's doubt, fear, uncertainty, and downright panic in the air. I'd like to talk about the ultimate safe haven asset that every one of you should own. The gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. People are more likely to be helped by the gospel in times of adversity than in times of prosperity. When I was young, my dad used to tell me about the ancient historic past, World War II. He lived through that period. And he said that was a period in which churches of Christ experienced booming growth. Why? There was fear, there was uncertainty, there was loss of life. Potentially, people were spooked. And they realized at a time such as that, that they needed God. People came in droves to hear the gospel. It was presented. There were all kinds of conversions to Jesus Christ during that period. Maybe, just maybe, we live in such a time as that. Don't panic. Be aware. Be cautious. Take precautionary measures. Be aware of what can and might happen. But above all, above all, in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. Always being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. First Peter 3 and verse 15. Maybe now more than ever. If people around us are falling apart at the seams, and they are, there's a stark contrast between them and those who have it all put together. With calm, serenity, and confidence in the Lord. I believe we may be approaching a time where we have unparalleled opportunities to share our faith with those who desperately need it. A little epistle of 1 Peter was written at such a time as this. In fact, times were even far worse than what we're, anything we're experiencing now. 
It was a time of persecution. It was a time in which Christians were marginalized. And there was this unbelievable smear campaign against Christians that would take off, particularly after the fires of Rome in AD 64 that were pinned on Nero, and Nero deflected that by pinning the blame on Christians. There was hysteria in the air, and there was an easy target, Christians. And they were put to death in numbers. But even leading up to that period and after, in the first few centuries, there was this unbelievable smear campaign. I have a, a book written by the recently departed New Testament scholar, Larry Hurtado. It's called Destroyer of the Gods. And uh, the first chapter in the book, first chapter in the book, is called Early Christians and Christianity in the Eyes of Non-Christians. How did non-Christians view Christians in the first couple of centuries? And the bottom line is he talks about Tacitus saying Nero blaming the Christians for that fire, and uh, Tacitus himself referring to Christians as hated for their abominations, and promoting a deadly, dangerous superstition. So there's this order of Nero to, to execute an, an immense multitude of Christians who are arrested, who are called haters of the human race. In addition to suffering mockery of every sort, they were torn apart by dogs, nailed to crosses, set afire to serve as human torches for, human, for Nero's nighttime spectacle. The very term Christians became derogatory, if it wasn't already. Or any number of unspecified abominations and wild accusations. Christians were accused of incest, cannibalism, wild sex, which is bizarre. But the rumors were rife. Misrepresentations were real. And against the backdrop of that beginning to play out in society at large, this is what Peter says to his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Go ahead and expect that kind of marginalization among society at large. We are nothing but exiles, resident aliens, and sojourners on planet Earth. This is not where our citizenship is. This is not our ultimate home. And so he says in verses 11 and 12 of 1 Peter chapter 2, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Nothing but sojourners and exiles. And in the process, you're going to suffer unjustly. Chapter 2 and verse 19. It says there that uh, it, this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows 
while suffering unjustly. And he goes on to say that Jesus has suffered for you, leaving you an example in this very regard, verse 21. He says you're going to be slandered in chapter 3 and verse 16. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. He talks about people maligning their uh, fellow neighbors who happen to be Christians because Christians refuse to participate in the immoral activities of their fellow pagan neighbors. In chapter 4 and verse 4, he says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. They make fun of you. They, they mock you because you're not participating with them in these excesses of immorality. It says in chapter 4 and verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial which is coming upon you. Don't be surprised. This is your lot as New Testament Christians. In fact, he says in chapter 4, verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. It's a terrible thing if someone were to suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him glorify God in this name. Chapter 4, verse 16. Bottom line is Christians were called deluded because they firmly believed in life after death. They were called atheists because they refused to bow down to Caesar or the Greco-Roman gods. They were called haters of mankind and antisocial because they abstained from immorality. They were called cannibalists because the Lord's Supper was grossly misrepresented as involving the eating of literal flesh and drinking of literal blood. They were despised, they were hated, they were slandered, they were smeared. But when people look closely enough, I am telling you they were secretly admired. And when major events swept through the empire, when the panic button was hit and the red flag of caution went up, in times of adversity, all of a sudden, Christians were flooded with opportunity because people knew deep down. But here are people who bear all of this gracefully and their character is off the chart, their lives are exemplary, and there's something about them that is missing in the rest of us. And they realized opportunities came flooded. Peter says, prepare your mind for action. If this is the way it is, and it is, prepare yourself to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Chapter 2 and verse 12. Prepare yourself. To create some cognitive dissonance. They say one thing, they see something entirely different, and they're trying to figure it out. They're trying to figure you out. 
By doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, he said. In chapter 2, verse 15. He speaks of one who endures sorrows while suffering unjustly, chapter 2, and verse 19. He speaks of wives married to pagan husbands who may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. They see something in your behavior, your daily life, that is so superior to anything else that they see in the rest of the world, the rest of society, that it makes this, this lasting and unalterable impression upon them. And many will be converted without you saying even a word. You're living the gospel. You don't have to preach it in a nagging sort of a way. You, you live it and they see it in action. He speaks in chapter 3, verse 16, of those who revile your good behavior in Christ, who are thereby put to shame. He speaks in chapter 4 and verse 1 of arming yourself. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What do all these things add up to? They add up to mental preparation. They add up to bracing yourself. They add up to chapter 1 and verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. Or girding up the loins of your mind, literally. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace of God that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Brace yourself for action. What kind of action? Because when you're living this life in a world in which Christians are misrepresented, slandered, blasted in every conceivable way, when panic hits in the greater society, that's when your opportunity to speak will come. All of the training we did last year is going to be available in practice, I believe, this year. And Peter basically says the same thing to Christians in his society. When should we be ready to speak? Well, always. At any and every given moment. Being always prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. When everybody else is falling apart and you have this silent, comforting assurance. That's when the opportunity And that's when you'd better be ready to speak. Why are we Christians anyway? In chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, you were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's why. Here's your opportunity. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So it's time to speak up. 
life. Because people all around us are lost in sin. And they'll die eternally lost in sin without intervention. Because the gospel is the only solution. It's the only hope people ultimately have. And thirdly, because if God's people don't share the message, who will? We are the world's only hope. God is the world's only hope. Jesus Christ is the world's only hope. The gospel is the world's only hope. But we need to participate in sharing at such a time as this. So, no fret when others are stressed. Maybe for good reason. Maybe for good reason. Maybe for overblown uh, reason. But for whatever reason, we have opportunities that we would otherwise not have. And we need to take them, uh, take them seriously. Others will see us differently. They'll see our calm, calm assurance. Others are watching you. And we have credibility that comes with that example and with that hope. Other people are vulnerable and their attitude toward us might shift from negative to positive. When they realize deep down, that there's more to your faith than they are giving you credit for. More to your faith than they are sometimes willing to admit. They're more likely to listen to what you have to say at such a time as this. So this is when everything is on the line. This is when our sacrifices pay off. In chapter 4, read, read these passages with me. Chapter 4, beginning with verse 12. Love, do not be surprised at the fiery or, or a trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the spirit of glory in God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing Chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties upon him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. In chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, some of my favorite verses in the New Testament. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again 
to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, reserved in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. I appreciate uh, Solomon's class. And uh, I'll remind those of you who were in it this morning of one verse that I think is, is good to, to keep in mind. The Israelites had the promise of God's angel going with them every step of the way on that wilderness journey. They had the promise of that angel's protective care Exodus 23-25. And God promised them that he would even protect them from certain illnesses. I don't know if you caught that. You might want to write that one down. It doesn't mean that illness will never occur. It doesn't mean that God's people will never suffer adversity. It doesn't mean that a young couple who are Christian with their baby won't get caught away in a tornado. There were plagues in the first century Roman Empire. They created wonderful opportunities for Christians to share their faith and to live their faith. Some died because of the collateral damage. But they saw it, as I suggested last week in the Lord's Supper talk, as a win-win situation. We get to serve God, we get to serve other people here and now, and we get to go to heaven. We get sick and die. This coronavirus thing will probably get a whole lot worse before it gets better. If there's panic now, maybe hysteria. I don't know. But in the context of eternity, it's a little tiny blip on the screen. We of all people need to see the big picture, and we need to live. The big picture. That doesn't mean throw the caution out the window. I'm not saying that. I'm saying ever before you see Jesus in the big picture. Very, very important right now. How do people get into this anyway? Same book of First Peter, chapter three, verse twenty-one. This water, the flood water, symbolizes. A water that, that you will experience. The waters of baptism. That now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You've never been baptized into Christ. You need to do that. 
And that should be our message to the world around us at such a time as this. We have a hope that they don't have. We have an assurance that they don't have. We have a confidence that they don't have. And we have eternal life. Because the one in whom our hope is placed was raised from the dead so that we might be raised to live eternally. If you're subject to the invitation called Christ, now would be a good time to respond to it. As together we stand and sing the song of invitation.